connections were dramatically diminished. The Kennedys would never help him, particularly with his tax dilemma. Author John Davis referred to him as one of the Kennedys' most determined enemies. Mickey said that the Democrats stole the election in Chicago, and Republicans had ample reason to believe him. Mobster Sam John Canna would boast about how he put JFK in the White House. Mickey confessed the mob's political realities. I know that certain people in the Chicago organization knew that they had to get John Kennedy in. There was no thought that they were going to get the best of it with John Kennedy. See, there may be different guys running for an office, and none of them may be the solution to what's best for a combination. The John Connors, in writing their book, were privy to some of the details. To assure the election's outcome, guys either trucked people from precinct to precinct and poll to poll, so they could vote numerous times, or stood menacingly alongside voting booths, where they made it clear to prospective voters that all ballots were to be cast for Kennedy. Mobsters like John Connor and Roselli expected special treatment in return. Mickey knew that Sinatra spoke to all the Kennedys, including Joe, requesting a soft touch from the new regime. Robert Kennedy left Sinatra cold, and John Connor lost confidence in Sinatra's Kennedy connection. Many also reported cheating by the Republicans, but obviously not at the skill level of the Democrats, whose own mob machine outfoxed Nixon's mobsters. While Mickey had a polarized association with the Kennedys, he had a perverse one with Marilyn Monroe, whom he does not mention in his memoir. Former investigator Gary Ween had observed Mickey's handsome boys, Sam Lucigno and Georgie Piscitelle, escorting Marilyn all over town, including Barney Ruditsky's Plymouth House and a motel on Van Nuys Boulevard in the Valley. On one occasion, Ween heard a bedroom recording of Marilyn, part of Mickey's extortion rackets. Mickey had tapes of her having sex with both Georgie and Sam. He thought that his attractive professional pimp, Piscitelle, could persuade her to talk about her dalliances with JFK. He believed that he could leverage Kennedy once he started having sex with Marilyn. Blackmail was no stranger to Mickey. It was part of the business. The hazy source for the above material is a party girl named Mary Mercandante who also worked for Georgie and became eager to turn against Mickey, since Georgie found Marilyn more attractive. According to Ween, Mercandante also told him, Cohen got mad and told Georgie to stick with Marilyn and pour drinks or pills down her, whatever it takes, and find out what John Kennedy intended to do about financing Israel. Mickey definitely wanted a closer connection to JFK and it was through Monroe that he got that link. He was the king when it came to manipulation. While some credit Sinatra with making the Monroe connection to the White House, Sinatra introduced Marilyn to JFK at Peter Lawford's Malibu Beach House, a popular showbiz hangout, there is evidence that it was really Mickey. The Lawford compound was renamed High Anus Port, likely by Rat Pack wordsmith Sammy Kahn. Everyone but Kennedy's sister, Pat Lawford, 
seemed aware that the locale was the in-place for wild sex, commented Marilyn Monroe, who had taken to hair-dye jobs below the waist. Poor Pat's so out of touch. She probably thinks we're playing football. The popular Kennedy pastime. The shared credit goes to Mickey Powell, comedian and Rat Pack regular Joey Bishop, for making the Shidua, Yiddish for match. According to Ween, Bishop was personally responsible for setting up JFK with Marilyn during the presidential campaign in 1960. It was Joey Bishop that came up with the idea of a wild party for JFK. He talked Lawford into it. Ween persists based on ethnic bonds. Bishop was a Jew and real tight with Cohen, and further makes his case. Bishop knew Kennedy would be taken by the Monroe sex appeal.